the podcast where we take you through the pictures directed by Martin Scorsese and the companion films from his letterbox list. I'm your co-host MJ Smith. And I'm Sarah Buttery and this is episode three and on this week's episode we are covering a non-Marty film so this is one of his companion films from his list Um, Mm -hmm. and that film is Guns Don't Argue. Uh, It's the companion film for Boxcar Bertha which will be our next Marty film that we do. Uh, this film, 1957, it was released. It is a composite of three re-edited episodes from the 1952 TV series Gangbusters, which I learned when I was doing my research for this. <laughs> <Same. laughs> um, released uh, in theatres in 1957 as a feature film. And there was a similar thing done with another film called Gangbusters, confusingly, uh, in 1954. So basically this tv series called gangbusters uh they have spliced together segments of this show and put it into two different feature films one of which is guns don't argue that we're talking about uh it is directed by richard c khan and bill khan confusingly spelt differently uh and it stars uh myron healy gene harvey paul dubov and a bunch of other people huge huge Mm -hmm. cast list on this one um And Marty's notes from his letterbox list say, Guns Don't Argue is pure, visceral exploitation. In a sense, the ultimate exploitation picture, made for pennies. But out of their extremely limited means, the filmmakers distilled everything to its essence, and they created some kind of art. The picture resonates with a minimalism that I can only call avant-garde. It's a reminder of why Godard dedicated Breathless to monogram pictures. Alrighty different very different film that we're talking about this week uh mj thoughts on guns don't argue um i think there's two things we need to talk about and so i think we need to talk about the marty part first um let's do it that is the premise of the show but um you know i think he's 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 got a little bit of a point i don't know if i fully see it i think he might be giving the film a little too much credit (laughs) um i don't think it's this avant-garde outsider art piece um i think it is just uh, it's it's a cash grab you know what i mean like it is the definition of a cash grab like they had this show the show was pretty popular the show was based was a tv show that was based off of a radio serial Mm. um and then they just took that footage and re-edited it re-edited it into a film because there were grindhouse films i do think he's right in that it is an exploitation film i do think he is even right in the purity of it being an exploitation film i do not think it is as avant-garde as he thinks it is (laughs) um i do not think this had any influence on godard whatsoever um but uh i see where he's coming from and i can see how a young marty how old is he when he, this movie comes out is he like what 
he's probably uh, five-ish, right? Fifty-two is when he, he was born. He was born in 40, 42. Forty-two. So okay, so he's pushing sixteen. Fifteen. Yeah, fifteen. 16. Yeah. Okay, and so I can see how a young, like teenage Scorsese, has this has this show in his home every other week growing up because it was the tv show was off dragnet off weeks and then dragnet got way more popular than gangbusters did <laughs> um dragnet kind of perfected the formula that, that gangbusters did but that's the second part uh that we'll talk about so i can see like a 16 year old marty like growing up with these tales of the depression era gangsters seeing a film like this and being like, that's kind of cool that they were able to do that. I can see him admiring mm-hmm. the scrappiness of like putting together something out of a different medium. I mean, it's Eisenstein, right? Like that's, that's how uh, Battleship Potemkin came to be. Right. Is and the, mm-hmm. the art of montage in general came to be was these poor post-revolution Soviet uh, artists and filmmakers re-editing American films, usually the works of D.W. Griffith into new sort of things where they were able to define what a montage was, right? It is mm-hmm. very much in that spirit. I don't think intentionally, but it is very much <laughs> in that spirit. But it is not good, which is fine. Exploitation movies, mm-hmm. by and large, are not good. But yeah. this is... I think this is just something that a teenage marty saw and was kind of impressed that they were able to take this show and repurpose it into something else i imagine that sticking with him as he begins to see the rise in exploitation films through the 60s Mm. and that's that's the reason i think it's on the the list i don't think it's on the list (laughs) because it's a good movie because it is not a good movie yeah, I, I'm I'm finding this list so interesting already because I think particularly for for this film and with Shadows as well, it's clear that these were films that uh, a young Scorsese watched and was like, I can do that because it makes it seem achievable. They're Correct. super low budget, like he said in his in his um in his notes, made for pennies. This film is you know. Mm-hmm absolutely nothing this 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 film is made for regardless of it coming from a tv show or whatever it's incredibly cheaply made and and so were shadows as well and marty is a guy who loves movies just full stop loves movies mm-hmm. but there's a difference between watching those sort of big studio pictures and those big budget films and going that's something i can enjoy and watching something like this and going that's something i can do and so I try to frame it like that because I also didn't enjoy this film um, kind of really at all. Um, I took several naps in it the first time I watched yeah. it, which I did tell you. I was like, MJ, I've fallen asleep again. It's happened again. Um, but trying to think about it as like, okay, put my Marty vision on here. Like watch this like he would have watched it. I got my big specs on, you know. Yeah. Um, and fucking <laughs> <laughs> your eyebrows. Yeah, um... I fluffed up my eyebrows a bit, um, <laughs> and was like, okay, what would he have thought when he when he saw this? And in the Marty's early films are low budget; they're independently made. They're yeah. kind of 
thrown together by any means necessary you know striking a deal with a porn distributor and put in a nude scene in a film just to just to get it out there it's kind of like that guerrilla filmmaking that, that that we've talked about just going out there and doing it so i i see that in this film I was also quite baffled by his notes on it because I read that first. I like to read the notes and then watch the film because the majority of these are first watches for me. And I'm like, right, I need to let me watch this with those notes in mind. So I kind of know what I'm getting myself in for. And like, like pure visceral exploitation. I was like, cool. That sounds like, that sounds good. Uh, And then describing it as avant-garde and then like 15, 20 minutes into the film, I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know I... if it's uh, an accurate description of it or what Marty perceives as avant-garde is very different to what others do. But yeah, yeah sure. I mean, it's it's funny too because well, first to tag up on your reading Marty's notes, I approached this movie very differently because I was like, oh, movie about like fifties movie about thirties gangsters. Got it, right? Like I did not mm-hmm. know the context for it. I didn't really look much up about it. And I was like, I'm going to do a fun thing where I did pour over the notes prior to watching Shadows. This one I'm going to watch on its own terms and then read Marty's <laughs> notes. And like 10 minutes in, I was like, all right, what the fuck are you on about, Marty? And so I, I, I read it and initially didn't get the exploitation thing, but now I get it, right? So like exploitation film is very specifically, you're exploiting a, an element of the film about, to basically get money out of the pockets of the of the of the film goer and with this the exploitation is like look at the exploits of these 1930s gangsters and then it's like backdoor weird fbi propaganda despite the fact that the fbi was no longer involved with the show at this point um yeah and so, so, like, I didn't really understand, like, the, the, the particular heart on it. Had, I mean, besides the fact that that was just, like, the vibe at the time. Um, hmm. But, yeah, and then especially thinking about Boxcar Bertha as an exploitation film, right? That is a film that it doesn't quite have, like, the... the it's not quite the sexploitation film that uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door became... Um, mm-hmm. despite the fact that, like, obviously Who's That Knocking on had so much more on its mind than its sex scenes. Um, Boxcar Bertha is sort of, like, it, best I remember, it's been a while since I've seen it, and it's also not great. Um, it's, it's more of, like, a... The, the exploitation in that film is more like a... a vagrant exploitation right which is a thing right we've seen hobo with a shotgun um come out in the last handful of years and so this is more about like a woman riding the rails in 1930s america Mm -hmm. there's some like pro labor union uh messaging to it and that's kind of it right like that's that's about as far it also it filters through roger corman this one um Mm -hmm. which is gonna be important when we talk about boxcar bertha because the whole modern film industry filtered through that man um (laughs) and yeah it it as an exploitation film i think he's like i said he's right with it being avant-garde i don't think 
I don't think it's very avant-garde. I think it's just it just came out of a mill somewhere. Someone cranked it out for a couple bucks because they already had the footage. Mm. That's it. Like it's not that complicated. It's it's merely a product, as is most exploitation film. Um, mm. mm-hmm. And so, as far as it being pure vers- visceral exploitation, yeah, he's a hundred percent right. As far as it being totally avant-garde, no, it's just <laughs> a way to make a couple bucks off some people who like gangster stories, which is fine. Like. You know, gangster movies make money, obviously. Like, mm-hmm. um, at least they used to a lot, you know? And uh, that's as far as it goes. Like, there's not a lot to this one, honestly. <laughs> um, it's not... Yeah. Because they didn't shoot anything additional. They just re-edited t- episodes of a television show. Yeah. Uh, the, the framing of it is kind of interesting and was unexpected. I think that it's it's sort of posited as this docudrama type Mm -hmm. thing where it's Mm -hmm. like everyone in it is an actor these aren't like the real people or whatever but you have moments of the actors who are playing the the fbi agents kind of like talking directly to camera there's a lot of narration as well which Mm -hmm. i found really distracting um because it's just it's that hand-holding storytelling Mm -hmm. i've got Mm -hmm frustrated with the narration to the point of wanting to just like switch off the sound and watch it like a silent movie because the the stories themselves like they're good and interesting stories there's a yeah. reason why they made so many gangster films like yeah. particularly around this time because they did well and they can they continue to do well you know i was just looking at uh other films about like mar barker as well and there's Mm. tons there's so Mm -hmm. many films where this character features or is the main character or is in the background or at least alluded to like so many yeah these are are figures that you know by name i knew the name john dillinger i didn't really know anything about him Mm -hmm. obviously i've heard of bonnie and clyde because of various films as well like these are these are, are names and people that you know about and yeah you can have this like i don't know gangster of the week style format that it's giving yeah. to you but i just i hated i hated the like putting it together as if it's like a, doc, a like a documentary type thing it just felt super super cheap and then oh every time there was like a bit of narration just like telling me what was happening i was like yeah i know i can see it yeah <laughs> i yeah. have eyes <laughs> and that's the thing right is like so i i and that that i think that's a lead into the second part is that this was a style of series. This was a style of, I think, one, because it started as a radio show. Mm -hmm. um, You're contending with that. And then, two, it's competing with Dragnet. Hardcore by this point, right? Like, Dragnet is the tippy top. The Mm -hmm. problem is that by the time Gangbusters becomes a television show, Gangbusters is not... Um, sanctioned by the FBI. Mm-hmm. Like, they're not really doing much to stop it, but they're not really doing much to support it. They reluctantly did, um, according to Wikipedia, all my information, all my research came from Wikipedia, just so every, we're on the same page. But the FBI kind of reluctantly um, uh, did, did, like participated in it. Like, Hoover didn't really want anything to do with it but he was like as long as you're doing this i would like final approval on all the scripts so it started off as like but it was also not called gangbusters at that point it was i think it was called like g-men 
tales or something. Um, yeah. And it, according to, once again, according to the Wikipedia and whatever source they were using on that, um, Hoover was like, yeah, as long as we're doing this, I want final approval on the script. And so they were doing that for a while. And so it, it was like this weird, like backdoor propaganda, like literal propaganda, right? Like the government mm-hmm. was signing off on it. And then um, it became not bad, but it was still like these tales of like hero investigators and stuff like that. And then with Dragnet, like Dragnet more or less was the propaganda arm of the Los Angeles Police Department right like they were heavily involved they had officers on site like doing the stuff right like heavily involved in production and so you know that was just like that was that was a way of like really bolstering people and ingratiating people to like very positive interaction or positive feelings towards policing in general because the LAPD was so involved with Dragnet but then Dragnet became way more of a hit because it had a bigger budget because it had the LAPD behind it. And the LAPD was mm. like, well, we're going to use this as PR. Like they leaned into using this PR. Whereas J. Edgar Hoover sure. and the FBI leaned away from gangbusters as PR. So gangbusters kind of floundered. And like, I was reading that by the time Dragnet had enough episodes to air, uh, week to week they just dropped gangbusters as a show mm. um nbc was just like we know this is the same show but way worse so um <laughs> and uh, because of that dragnet also started as a radio drama right and so i think that's why there's a lot of narration which is it's still annoying it's still not good it just in the whole time i was thinking about dragnet the entire time i was watching this movie i was like this is just bad dragnet <laughs> like this is <laughs> That's it. It's the, it's the same. It's the same shit. It's just a lot worse. Um, and just like cut into a movie for like, at least when they made Dragnet, it was in the 80s and starred Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd and they did a rap video for it. Um, <laughs> That's what this film is missing. Yeah. Uh, got it. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. City of Crime by Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd. Look it up, y'all. It is buck wild it's a thing yeah it is a beastie boys style rap about dragnet um good lord (laughs) i yeah i wasn't expecting this film to be as like propagandary as it is so it was kind of gross and i think that it's like we did say like going into this uh, that there were going to be some films that age poorly like for Mm -hmm. whatever reason Mm -hmm. but i think something that is so not just like pro fbi but pro like putting weapons into the into the hands of the fbi yeah. is kind of like all right yeah it's very different to watch this as a person for the first time in 2023 with everything that has happened well and also <laughs> you like know the, the part i don't understand well so here's here's the thing right is like i think there's a larger thing happening here in that this is mccarthy era right like um yes Right. When is when is the Red Scare? Um, first Red Scare, second Red Scare. Yeah. So yeah, second Red Scare and McCarthyism happens forty-seven to fifty-seven. So it's a ten-year period where essentially the government guts Hollywood, and now they're in charge. Right. And like, 
if you see people complaining about like why did hollywood have why is hollywood so left-leaning a bunch of you know liberal weirdos in hollywood the reason is this like this is a, this is a product <laughs> of that era and the reason that happened is because the government particularly joe mccarthy went through blacklisted pretty much everyone he didn't like as a communist they didn't get to work again including fucking charlie chaplin um <laughs> by the way <laughs> and um basically said they were all communists and then like hollywood gets super conservative in this period like super conservative and then the mccarthy era ends the sort of blacklisting ends a little bit and then, like, all the liberals return to Hollywood, and instead of bringing balance, because they're pissed, it swings super hard left, and it's basically stayed there ever since. And that's, like, that's the, the you know, it's obviously more nuanced than that, but that's the, like, nuts and bolts, bird's eye view of what happened with McCarthyism and why you see, like, a very left lean in Hollywood these days. But if you look at media from the 40s and 50s, it's hyper-conservative. And mm -hmm. it's because mm -hmm. the industry got gutted of anyone deemed an enemy of the state. And it allowed people like the LAPD to come in and do whatever they wanted and say whatever they wanted and adjust the public image of their agencies however they wanted and so it's really weird because because fbi not involved at all with gangbusters at this point not involved with guns don't argue whatsoever they're not signing yeah. up on scripts they're not doing anything and so it just so happens that the people behind it happen to be conservative and fucking love the fbi so, <laughs> so that's it and like that's the reason it's propaganda -y, even though it's technically by definition not because it's not sanctioned by the u.s government right like if we're talking about yeah. like the g-men show it is propaganda this technically not the definition of it but still serves the same function weirdly enough like this is just a bunch of weirdos who are super pro the government <laughs> and um you know obviously as a little punk rock kid like that is never gonna <laughs> sit well with, with me and yeah. um yeah, it's just really weird. Like, I don't know if you noticed this, but, like, they never reference Hoover by name at all. Because mm -mm. I don't think they could. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so weird to watch something that is so clearly skewed, like, one way, but without any endorsement or involvement from that bit. Like, it's yeah. just weird. And, right. like, and what... What is particularly, like, uncomfortable or strange, I guess, about this film is that it is, uh, it's described as, like, a revisionist docudrama. So yeah, some much. things are relatively true to what happened, but I think specifically with events leading up to capture of the criminals or sort of things happening, like, involving the fbi they have been changed or altered slightly to sort of put them in a better light like sure. the one bit i was reading is that like um bonnie and clyde like there's the the scenes like the film shows them firing off the first shot and they were given time to give themselves mm -hmm. up not just kind of like gunned down um but what really happened was that they were just gunned down in an ambush by the mm -hmm. police and we see that 
in other films we can read about it as well in other places so it's this sort of like painting themselves in an even more positive light even though those people aren't actually involved in it it's just weird <laughs> yeah weird yeah well and and it, it's it's weird too because it's like I'm no expert on Dillinger, but I got pretty into Dillinger in 2000-whatever when that Michael Mann uh, Dillinger movie came out, Public Enemies. Um, I actually yes. really liked that movie a lot. I feel slightly weird about promoting something with Johnny Depp in it, but it was a pretty good movie. And <laughs> um, actually, I really like that movie a lot. I think it's I think it's an underrated Michael Mann movie. Um, it made me want to watch Public Enemies again, actually. Um, yeah, because they say that phrase a lot. Yeah, they say that phrase a lot. Well, and, and I just I, I think like, the story oh, is really interesting. Yeah, I should watch that. <laughs> yeah, it's a good movie. I don't know if you've seen it or how long it's been since you've seen it. So I don't know if it holds up. A but while. I, I saw it twice in theaters. I thought it was really dope. Um, but I think the story is super interesting. Like, I think it's a really interesting way of how he got taken down with the betrayal at the theater. And like, obviously mm -hmm. that's like cinematic. Right. And so, you know, I didn't get, it's been a while since I've done like the heavy research about Dillinger, but best I remember, like most of the actual detail, like the actual, like high level stuff, pretty accurate. Right. They obviously change, sure. uh, like the the motivations ascribed to certain actors in the situation uh skew very heavily towards the fbi which is fine whatever they're telling the story from a particular point of view um but then like the carpus thing completely different like i mm -hmm. the like the the carpus thing i was looking up because i actually kind of quite liked the carpus capture like that underwater sequence i thought was kind of neat um mm, the, 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 the very last sequence at the end um, when he's on the boat and then there's like the fist fight on the boat. Like I was like, oh, this is the most technically impressive shit in the movie. Like this is actually like, pretty well made and kind of cool mm -hmm. looking. Um, like there's like the, the part where the G-man is going after him with the knife underwater and like they wrestle the knife out of his hand. And I was like, this is kind of sick. Like I, 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 if the whole <laughs> movie was shit like this, I'd kind of be on board a little bit. Um, Carpus was surrounded in a car and arrested mm -hmm. in a car. That's it. That's all that happened. Hoover was there. That's uh, <laughs> that's the biggest. That's the biggest thing. I looked it up after. Once again, Wikipedia is my source on that. So, uh, yeah, he was just he was in a he was caught in a car in New Orleans. That's it. Mm. That's all that happened. So, they like definitely embellished that story a little bit, and like that's fine, right? Like, I think either way, right? Like even if you're, if you're making just a movie about the Alvin Carpus story or whatever. And it doesn't have a particular bend either way. It's more cinematic to have the showdown on the boat. <laughs> you know, like I'm not I'm not gonna fault the movie for for doing that, right? But the way it's framed yeah. in this is like we had this super intense fight on a boat and then overtook him and it was weird because we're badasses, right? Like the, even the narration is like, you know, my physical training that the FBI provided me uh was greater than what Carpus's was and it's like well there wasn't a struggle when you actually arrested him <laughs> you know like yeah it was yeah. just like g-men get top training and that's why i was able to overpower this <laughs> low down dirty gangster and it's like well no you guys just surround him in a car like <laughs> yeah and i there's there's a real difference i think between like embellishing something for dramatic purposes and because it makes it more cinematic or whatever mm -hmm. and then like changing something to push an agenda right. or to make someone look 
better, stronger, more capable, whatever than 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 they are. Like we've we've spoken about this a lot on our on our other podcast, weirdly about the sort of the the ethics of you know based on a true story, inspired by a true story or whatever. Like taking someone's real story and then making what you could consider as necessary changes for the narrative to make it a more interesting narrative, to make it more cinematic, all of these things, but. There's something just, I think, like specifically uncomfortable about what this film is doing, where it's like, you know, they're making these changes to make these, not make the the the, the gangsters look better because it's very much not from that point of view at all. Yeah. Um, but making the, the, the FBI like so much, look so much better. Like right. it's clear that that's the point of view it's pushing and it's there for like, changing things that happened and more uncomfortable because it's presenting it like a docudrama Mm -hmm. i think there was just a bunch of things about this that just like didn't sit right with me i'm like if you're presenting something like it is fact and you are presenting this film as if it's a documentary then you're coming in like with an agenda and changing things that happened to push like a particular point of view yeah that feels uncomfortable well and it's 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 also very strange to me because like i i want to say something we haven't said and probably should have these people were criminals and murderers who should have been prosecuted like these yes we are not on the side of the gangsters here right yeah Um, and i do not clarify our stance like these were absolutely people who did a lot of like they they did mass murder yes right and like these are these are people who absolutely did need to be brought to justice uh and yeah it's just that the means of which they were were maybe a little extreme based on the actual laws on the books in this country um and so that's that's the point we're driving at. We are not saying like <laughs> these are innocent, perfect baby angel children who did nothing wrong in their lives. Like Dillinger was a yeah. nuisance. <laughs> like he was a public menace. He was, you know, he was a real piece of shit. That guy actually, like he kind of sucked. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Not a good man. <laughs> and um, yes, so there is that right. Like <laughs> I don't want to seem like we're like pro, but there is like. <laughs> there is this sort of because of the way in which these people got brought down it has the opposite effect where it's like there's this romanticization of their stories of like bonnie and clyder looked at his folk heroes and it's like no they just they killed kind of a lot of people for no fucking reason (laughs) like and Mm -hmm. you know a lot of these people were i'm of two minds about this right where it's like a lot of these people were driven to these uh, crimes because they had a chip on their shoulder about the depression, which is understandable. However, I think robbing people who were also going through the depression isn't the answer to that. Right. (laughs) And like, yeah, most of them are robbing banks and there's like federal insurances or whatever with banks. But like, also that's still like banking wasn't electronic. You know what I mean? If you go steal a bunch of money from the bank, that's still people like it was mainly a cash only society at that point. So if you go empty out a bank vault, there are people who can't feed their families that night, you know, and they're also going through the depression. Right. And and so it's not even like, so there is this like folk hero aspect to it that we have these days. And like certain movies, particularly Bonnie and Clyde have led to that 
And it's like, well, yes, but also no, (laughs) not even a little bit, because Mm. these like they were screwing over like innocent bystanders, even if they weren't shooting them in the bank robbery. It was like if you like I said, if you go empty out a bank vault, when is that insurance money going to come in for the bank? Which means when are these other people who bank there going to get access to their money? They can't just transfer their Mm. account to a new bank the way we can now. Right. um they can't just like the government can't just be like oh yeah you got robbed in the middle of the day like that's an insurance thing here like you know this is not gonna Mm -hmm. affect there's not a protection for physical cash you know like a physical product now has to get routed to this bank to cover the money which means it's gonna take a couple days minimum (laughs) and you know people who are already in very dire straits because of the depression do not get to feed their family that day or access mm. their wages for whatever they needed it for and that's shitty like don't do that <laughs> right so <laughs> it is it is it is this th- and also like dudes like dillinger and babyface nelson were also just fucking criminals right like they yes. they, they, they like <laughs> they just they got off on the public enemies title honestly like they courted public you know they were the guys going in and being like you know tell him dillinger was here you know like they wanted Mm. to be famous off of the back of this so like yeah not good people like absolutely the stories being told are stories of people who did need some sort of justice brought to them but the way in which this movie handles it is very weird (laughs) yes yeah and i it's it's interesting because like this will be something we continue to talk about going forward when we're talking about uh, Scorsese films is that how much people tend to either criticize or misunderstand Scorsese's films as being yeah. like it romanticizes crime it makes you know gangsters seem like great people i mean as we established on the who's that knocking episode fundamental misreading of Scorsese's films to come out of those films and go those seem like good people uh because yes we're it, it's putting it from their point of view I mean you take mm-hmm. a film like Goodfellas like we are with those gangsters those criminals like the the whole time pretty much we and are seeing things like from them. yeah and that's and because it's supposed to challenge you and it's yeah. like why do you why do you like them like what is it about them that that is appealing but there's there's something to sort of dive into and and think about with that idea and it's more about like are these characters so beyond saving are these characters so beyond redemption that's usually the angle marty's films come at and most a lot of the time it's no there is you know these characters aren't worthy of that or it's left to you to decide as we kind of had differing opinions on on the ending of of who's that knocking and Mm. what it means but it's yeah i I, what i'm trying to say is that like i can see how a young marty watching this film would be like i want to do something like that at some point in the future but i'm gonna tell the story from these guys Mm-hmm. point of view mm-hmm. like these are clear there's there's a lot of these films there's a lot of these like gangster films they're clearly films that he likes and enjoys mm-hmm. and then it comes to the point where he is then able to to make those for himself but it is like 
challenging that idea. Like at no point do his films ever say what these guys are doing is good, but yet you like them and it's and it's there's a whole like I don't know things <laughs> things to think about with that. Like why do we like them? <laughs> we also, shouldn't. <laughs> also, there's plenty of films that say what these guys are doing is good. They're called the fucking ocean movies. Italian guy. <laughs> yeah. Heat. Yeah. Like, there's plenty of... Like, if you want to level that criticism at anyone, level them at that. You're rooting for the criminals in that movie. That is a movie where you are... Like, they're all hot. Every last one of them. Like, they got the hottest people who've ever been on screen to be in this movie. All of them. <laughs> and, like... Uh, you know, they're, they're competent, they're collected under pressure, they get one over on every authority, whether it is a government mm -hmm. agency or not. Like, and you end the movie being like, that was dope as shit, right? Like, I don't think I, there's, a, I don't know a single person who doesn't think that, uh, uh, I almost called it 9-11, who doesn't think Ocean's Eleven is, um, a really fun, good movie. Cause it yeah. is. You know, yeah. but you also like if you think about it for two seconds, you're rooting for criminals in that movie. Yeah, and and the difference with those movies is it isn't really challenging you in the same way that no. Marty's films are to be like, why do you why do you like these people? Mm -hmm. Why are you rooting for them? Yeah. Like pointing a finger at you. I mean. Uh, sorry that we're going to keep talking about the Killers of the Flower Moon <laughs> ending, yep. but no. Yep. Yep. No film has, like, come and, like, addressed the audience and gone, like, what do you think about that, motherfuckers? More than <laughs> the ending of that film. So we are gonna... It's gonna pop off when we get to that film. That movie, to that film. God damn. It is the most <laughs> aggressive ending I've ever seen, to, I think, any movie. <laughs> like, I was just like, It's Holy so good. Shit. It um, feels like the... It feels like the ending that, like, Scorsese has been trying to do. Absolutely. Like, for his whole absolutely. career. And there's been... There's been elements of it as mm -hmm. well, but it's never been as, like, aggressively in your face as that, to yeah. the point where, like, the director is there. Mm -hmm. And, like, presenting this, for, this thing as, like, an entertainment piece, but then, like, challenging you to think about what you've just seen and what it means. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that's what his films have been doing, like, for a very long time, but some it's going to be an interesting conversation when we get to the wolf of wall street because i think what a lot of people take away from that film is just like he's a real cool dude he's a so you know he, he's a guy you would aspire to be you know he gets like the hottest women he has all this money he has all this power he has everything he wants at no point does that film say this guy's a good guy not once no <laughs> not even slightly yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's anyone paying like yeah. an iota of attention to that movie should understand that like it is not on this guy's side like it, it the movie treat that movie treats him like the lamest dipshittiest loser that ever existed <laughs> and like yeah and then yeah with killers like killers of the fire moon like the alternate title of that movie might as well be don't make me tap the side and <laughs> so it's so true yeah and it's it's so it is funny like especially i think especially that this happened after killers of the flower moon like i think there's a reason you we brought it up because i was thinking about the same thing right because killers yeah. of the flower moon very like the full title of the book is killers of the flower moon the osage murders and the birth of the fbi it is inextricably linked to the subject matter of guns don't argue 
Um, mm-hmm. I've read the book. The first half of the book is mostly what we see in Killers of the Flower Moon in the first half, right? And then the back half is nothing but FBI shit. It is. It switches perspectives entirely. It's told entirely from Molly Burkhart's point of view until it's not. And then it's told from uh, Jesse Plemons' character's point of view. Mm. And the rest of the thing. And so I was wondering how he was going to handle that. And it's so interesting because he doesn't, right? Like, it stays with Molly. It stays with Ernest. Um, You know, this is not the Killers of the Fire Moon cast, but people are mad that it's from Ernest's point of view. Whatever. I'm not here to argue that. We'll get there eventually. Um... But the, the the movie, when it does do a, a, a perspective shift, because I don't think it is entirely told directly, like 100% from Ernest's point of view. I think it is no. mostly told from Molly's. And then once Molly gets sidelined because Ernest sucks, it uh, is told from Ernest's point of view but it's never like on his side, right? And so mm-hmm. rather than like in the back half of the movie switching to, you know, the guys who brought the killers to justice or whatever like cuz the book is like very also very like pro FBI. And um rather than that, the movie switches to like we're going to spend the rest of this very directly with the men who caused this, right? And like just watching the like how maniacal they can actually get and with that in mind and the fact that scorsese and his writing partner for this film because scorsese co-wrote colors of the flower moon chose not to show the fbi stuff really at all like jesse plemons is a glorified cameo in that movie Mm -hmm. he is barely in it and uh which does kind of suck because i really (laughs) like jesse Plemons, but that's neither here nor there but on the heels of watching killers of the fire moon and then watching this which is so like you know g-men are the top elite agents in the government or whatever like whatever they're having to say it's so interesting to be like okay i actually kind of appreciate that he can put a film like this on his list while acknowledging the fact that like hey, maybe the book was a little too rah, 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 FBI. Mm. Uh, And, like, J. Edgar Hoover, not, like, a great dude. Um, Mm. (laughs) And, like, actively avoided lionizing him in Killers of the Fire Moon, which the book does not. But still putting this on the list as, like, hey, yeah, I saw this movie that's super pro-FBI and it stuck with me. You know what I mean? Like... There's still elements about it I can take out of there. Because I think that he probably could, he probably looked at it as like we were talking about this thing of like how you can repurpose something that existed previously and make it into something that at the time he found compelling, right? Mm. Um, Like it's clear he does like this movie. And it, even though it's about a subject matter that he like kind of directly takes on and criticizes in killers of the flower moon and this list came out post killers of the flower moon um i actually think that's really kind of mature right like and like what i'm i'm not saying that like you know he needs to be putting like fucking triumph of the will on this list right like that's not (laughs) that's not what i'm saying right like if he did that that's a giant red flag right but 
this is like weird it's just a weird thing where it's like it's not government sanctioned propaganda it is still pretty propaganda-y in its uh tone and execution um but he also took something of value that he remembered when he was making Bar boxcar bertha into mm. that experience and now it's like inextricably linked for him and i don't think that's a bad thing right like there's I, I don't know. I think consuming media with, like, views that you don't agree with is probably good, by and large. Like yeah. like I said, unless it's, like, actively extremely harmful, potentially, mm. right? Like I said, mm -hmm. like something like Triumph of the Will, which is literally a propaganda film. And, um, you know, if – but if it's something like, I don't know, The Dark Knight is a movie I like, but it's, like, pretty pro-government surveillance – Mm. still kind of slaps though <laughs> like <laughs> yeah it's i it's one of the reasons why i find scorsese's companion films list so interesting because it's not just here's a bunch of films that i like or here are films that are thematically similar or whatever i just feel like this is like a very intricate puzzle that we are piecing together on this podcast mm -hmm. of like we're mm -hmm. not quite gonna know we, we don't really know what it's gonna look like until the end until we're finished but seeing these pieces and seeing how they fit together and the weird thing that i thought about was like after learning that gangbusters which became this film was like a radio serial we basically see them doing that at the end of killers of the flower moon right as yeah. like a yeah. I mean, they're doing it in front of an audience, but they're they're like dramatizing the the events and mm -hmm. making it entertainment. And like something clicked in my brain when I was like watching this film and then doing the research about it afterwards. I was like, oh yeah, that's weird that I can make that connection to a film that is not the companion film for this. But it's not just this film goes with this and then has no impact whatsoever on the other films that we'll be talking about or anything else in in Scorsese's career because you could have he could have paired this film with any one of his gangster films do you know what I mean like uh we'll see kind of when we talk about Boxcar Bertha like the the connections and and, and what it is that sort of made him him pick this film as the companion for for that but it's we might not understand and they might not be films that we like as well as I think is the case with this one like neither one of us really enjoyed it that much but seeing how Scorsese's mind works even just a little bit I mean we might be completely off because we have not met the man or spoken to him but seeing him mature in a way that like he can make a film like Killers of the Flower Moon but like you said, still appreciate what this film does or did for him as a young filmmaker, even though it is, like, in some areas problematic. Right. Well, also, um, true crime's not new. Like, I think, I think that's, <laughs> that there, there's a little bit of that at play as well of like, these are true crime stories. We've always liked true crime. Yeah. We've liked true crime. So like, you loved it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, d I texted you and I was like, is it a true crime doc? <laughs> Fuck this noise. Like, yeah. Um, but there's a, there's a video I've been meaning to check out. Um, it is on YouTube. It was, I got it off the, um, 
I don't know how in the YouTube space you are, Sarah, but the do you know who H Bomber Guy is? No. Okay, so H Bomber Guy did this four-hour video essay about plagiarism, specifically on YouTube, and I have vaguely heard of this. Okay, I can't remember how, but yes, it became Sorry. a big deal. It's become a big deal because <laughs> yeah. it ruined some careers. <laughs> um, sure uh that needed to be ruined but uh it at the end of it he recommends these um videos from other youtubers who are doing really good work in the video essay space who are not plagiarizing people and one of them is i will give it a shout out i cannot speak to it i've not i have a queued to watch probably this weekend while i'm doing stuff or listen to because i listen to a lot of video essays um Shakespeare, uh it's like shakespeare but replace the k with an n um it's called the internet is turning its back on true crime and it is more or less as he presented it a history of true crime in society and uh that sounds super interesting to me right um mm -hmm. because i'm not against the storytelling us I'm not against something telling the story of a true crime that happened, right? I love Zodiac. I love Memories of Murder. I love Heat. Uh, not Heat. Uh, I love Public Enemies. Um, you know, these are those are true crime movies. They are true crime movies, mm -hmm. right? I don't like, however, um, the podcasts, one, because there's, like, no journalistic training within a podcast. Like, anyone can start a podcast, which is why we're here. Um, but because of that, like, you don't have to take a journalistic ethics course to start a true crime podcast. And mm. that's a big fucking deal. Like, <laughs> uh, you absolutely should. And so these, like, dipshits with a hundred dollar Zoom recorder go out and harass victims' families, um, mm. or suspects' families to get a scoop. And, like, that's not, like, the press is already vultury enough when it comes to that. Um, mm. and so I really want to watch that video because I would like to see, it's no secret, right? Like we, there's like, there's documentation of like there being theater shows where basically they like would bring out serial killers paraphernalia onto the stage and like the people involved would talk about it. And like guns that argue is just a true crime story. Honestly, like it's a bunch yeah. of true crime stories strung together. Um, it's just that the tone is very weird right uh killers <laughs> of fire moon is a true crime story and plays pretty much like a true crime story until it gets to that hyper aggressive ending where it's like why 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 do you like that weirdo <laughs> um you know and it's marty doing it as well which is just like even better <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly so good and uh you know wolf of wall street true crime story um goodfellas mm -hmm. true crime story casino true crime story the irishman true crime story <laughs> uh you know most most of his like his his gangster movies in particular are true crime stories and so there is a way to do true crime where i do like it right but i find it largely exploitative and disrespectful and aside from that bad i think they're mostly poorly written um but yeah i think that that it is super fascinating to with the sort of 2023 like wave of true crime that we have right look at a true crime thing from 
1957 and be like, mm. oh, so it's always been weird and gross. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think people think of it as being like a new thing just because of how many, I don't know, Netflix documentaries mm-hmm. and stuff you get about it. I mean, they bring out however many, you know, documentaries every year and then it's like the thing that people talk about for ages and then it just disappears and it's like onto the next one like the next weird creepy yeah story that so it feels like it should just be investigated by people who know what they're doing rather than you know unqualified people uh yeah <laughs> but yeah i is there i getting into like the specifics of 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 this film are there any We've spoken about the the ending, which we both liked, but any any other bits that you liked or felt was stronger than than the others? Because I mean, it does kind of it tells a lot of stories in mm-hmm. a short space of time with some overlap, but obviously some are more compelling than others. I will say personally, I quite enjoyed the Ma Baker stuff. The Ma Baker Ma stuff Baker was even. very interesting. I don't know much about Ma Baker. She was probably the uh, like obviously I've Barker, heard the name. I think was it? What's that? Was it, I think it was Barker, or maybe I spelled it wrong. No, yeah, you're right, Barker. Barker. Okay, great. Yeah, <laughs> I thought I'd written it wrong in my notes. Yeah. No, yeah. Um, no, uh, that stuff was super interesting. I liked her. I liked the woman who played her and the guy that played was it Doc Barker, her husband. Mm-hmm. I really liked those performances a lot. I thought they were the best in the film um, by yeah, a long shot. They were really, really, really solid. Um, mm-hmm. And that made me want to look up more about Ma Barker because I don't know, I know virtually nothing about her. Like the, honestly, that bit about like Dillinger, Dillinger's like weird side job with her—that's the extent I knew mm. about it. Um, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like I didn't know much about that story really at all. So it was that part mm-hmm. I thought was interesting, right? And like it is, it is weird because in what i remember from the dillinger story and what i looked up to confirm like the wooden gun thing right um as far Mm. as the fbi official files are concerned that is what happened with the wooden gun and dillinger story so that part is at least true insofar as like the information you can find publicly from the fbi so that like they did like stick to the facts right there you know, and so, but then obviously they play fast and loose with like how Alvin Carpus got busted. So mm-hmm. it's weird. It's the the movie's weird, and like I said, by and large, like what I remember of the Dillinger story, the big details are correct, even down to like him wanting the plastic surgery and stuff. Uh, weird to have that plot point twice in the same movie, but I guess we could talk about that in a second. Um, and. So, but then with the, like, the Carpus thing is so drastically different from how he got caught that it's like, well, I don't know what to believe about the stuff I know way less about, right? Like, I don't know much about Mm. Pretty Boy Floyd. I don't know much about Ma Barker. Um, Yeah, so I don't know what's true and what's not in that story. I suspect, once again, that, like, the larger points are true, right? Like, it's Mm. known she did a job with Dillinger and, you know, Pretty Boy Floyd and babyface nelson it's probably true that like her kid got shot in a shootout with the fbi um you know that stuff i think is reliable enough 
to give you like an accurate portrayal of like the big the the bullet points right the outline is probably true is what i'm saying Mm. and but other than that like it i don't know and so i want to look up more like it is this is one of the few things to get me to probably listen to a true crime podcast honestly (laughs) i want to look up podcast episodes about the ma barker story because i she seems really important to this sort of cadre cadre of of 30s gangsters and i don't know virtually anything about her Mm. yeah it's such a, a an interesting figure as well and i can you can see not exactly, but like in a film like Goodfellas, obviously we have Catherine Scorsese in it, but like the importance of the kind of the mother figure and like the 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 part that she plays like in that group. I mean, Ma Barker is like the ringleader. She is the one who is like orchestrating, yeah. planning the yeah. job. So like very different to the character in, in Goodfellas, but you can see like Marty taking ideas of this and kind of like putting that into his films as well but yeah i thought she was great there was a some real like some genuinely really good lines in this film and i'm i'm a real sucker for that like quippy one-liner mm-hmm. kind of like mm-hmm. dialogue in films like this so mar barker is like talking to one of her sons about like a job and then he's he's eating his breakfast or whatever um and then it goes from talking about like a job to then like hurry up we'll be late for church and i was like brilliant amazing yeah. Uh, my, I think my favorite line in the whole film, and I don't know if this is real or not, but it just made me laugh, um, is when the her sons take uh, Ma's husband out and shoot him, mm-hmm. um, and then when they come back to her, she's like, "Why did you waste so much ammunition?" Yeah, and it's like they've just shot her husband. Yeah, but like that's the thing she's thinking about, and I was like, "Oh, that's really good." That's I really um, good. so I was thinking about that <laughs> with um. The Departed, uh, when mm. they show Frank shoot the couple on the beach, and yes. Frank goes, "Huh, she fell funny," and like that, <laughs> such a good line. And then, and then, um, <clears throat> is it Mr. French, Ray Winstone? He goes, "You really should see someone, Francis." <laughs> so funny. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> and like the the who's the guy in this who who gets his face changed but not really. The first one anyway. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one is um uh oh gosh. Al something. It's not Alvin Carpus, is it? Maybe it's not. I can't remember. They do all kind of blur into one a little bit. In, yeah. In this. Yeah. But um, it was yeah, a lot of a lot of strong-jawed white dudes in this movie yes very much so but like when he's with the with the doctor and um the the girl he's with is like oh but i like your face and he's like maybe the doc will give me one that you love i was like ah that's a really good line (laughs) i enjoy that (laughs) um oh uh homer van van meter i think possibly no i don't know (laughs) anyway uh oh also <laughs> that reading, guy <laughs> reading the wikipedia um it looks like in paul wood's book scorsese a journey through the american psyche from 2005 which is not one of the ones on our list i think or one of the ones we're currently <laughs> reading um scorsese was quoted as saying it's an amazing film it's to be studied because it shows you how to make a film on a low budget <laughs> 
so this is still very much within that like um realm of shadows right where he is learning right he's Mm -hmm. at the outset of the career the budgets are not as big as they get right like he no one's handing marty 200 million dollars to go make boxcar bertha (laughs) um nor should they have by the way he made one movie (laughs) um like it's it's you know he's paying his dues still he's making his name getting his name out there doing gigs that are like maybe a little not beneath him but like more for exposure like yes he's getting paid but they're not necessarily projects he wants to make right um Mm. but that's the era of scorsese that we're in right now and so absolutely in that sense like i do think that like they're it, like the tone's weird is largely pretty boring um but there's like tidbits of information in the film that are interesting and then also like with the context that it was an existing as three episodes of a television series that then become a film i could see as someone trying to make a film on a shoestring budget that being fascinating right of like okay how do you structure this into something that makes even a little bit of sense out of these three sort of disparate Mm -hmm. stories right like yes there is some crossover in like the the barker the barker carpus gang and like dillinger and his his like you know cohorts um crossing over a little bit so you can like use that as bridges to weave the stories in and out of each other but like then it becomes a puzzle of editing right and scorsese which we've talked about very involved in the editing process big editing guy Mm. very 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 into editing that man um so it is then like after as as a result of that it's like oh okay well i can see the appeal for marty in that it's you know it is this super low budget thing but it's not like completely incompetent either right it's boring yeah but (laughs) it's not incompetent it doesn't not make sense right there's Mm -hmm. some asides in there that could be chopped out right like the stuff with pretty boy floyd i was like this does not add anything to the film like we we don't need the pretty boy floyd story in there because it's largely about the barker carpus gang and dillinger just make it about that um right and i think honestly i think if they would have just made it the barker carpus gang and dillinger it would have been pretty compelling. It actually might have been I, I a agree. pretty good movie. Um, but we waste so much time with the first surgery guy, the first plastic surgery guy, who that goes nowhere. There's like cool reveal that is very similar to Twilight Zone. Like I was like, holy shit. I was like, did Rod Serling steal this? Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I guess that could have, you could have viewed that as like, um, what, Invisible Man? Mm. um as well but it just plays so much like the eye of the beholder reveal i was I, like watching it i was yeah. like i had to do like the quick math of like uh wait when did when was twilight zone twilight zone was after <laughs> this okay cool yeah like which one came first yeah yeah it was definitely this yeah i think with a like you said with a a tighter focus that this could have been better because you, you they're, they're taking content from the show as well and just cutting it together so there must be bits like from the show about these particular people that then like didn't make it in yeah. into the film but 
there are too many to the point where we are like not remembering this guy's name because they all kind of blur into one at, <laughs> at some point and you wanna you can have this like a variety show of gangsters or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. and focus on these sort of three major ones that, that that people are sort of like very familiar with and have that be the film and that like you said be pretty compelling and pretty enjoyable and pretty watchable but there's i think it's both the way it's packaged and like how much there is in it that doesn't work yeah. in this film yeah. necessarily like the 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 painting i just i can't get over the like painting it like a docudrama but then not being completely there like with the facts mm -hmm. i'm just like that just feels like very inappropriate to me i don't know i feel like if you're presenting something as like a factual documentary unless it is very clearly a mockumentary which this this is not but like right. unless you're making that like very clear like from the top then it's kind of a weird way of of, of putting it across but yeah the the low budgetness of this i think is what the main thing that marty took away from it and does it show that you can make a semi-compelling story for no money yeah kind of does mm -hmm. doesn't we didn't enjoy it but that's okay like it shows it shows you can do it so you can see why having not seen boxcar birthday yet but like you can see why something like this could be paired with that in terms of like it is possible to make something on like an absolute shoestring and that's what marty was doing in 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 the beginning so yeah i did you look up the goddard thing because i did mm -mm. but because i was intrigued pictures. by it yeah i was like what does that mean so i i've heard it. of monogram picture um yeah so there is um i found it's an excerpt from an interview um with goddard where he was asked um why did you dedicate breathless to monogram pictures um and he said i did it to prove that you can do pictures that are both interesting and cheap in america a cheap picture is not considered interesting and mm. i said why not because actually there are many american directors who do b and c pictures who are very interesting and i was like oh okay now that reference makes <laughs> makes sense but also yeah. the idea of these directors that everyone knows i mean we, we you know we all know marty we all know who Jean-Luc Godard is so them being guys who also appreciate the like I'm gonna call them the bottom of the barrel because that's unfair but like that really cheap making a movie for pennies kind of thing and appreciating that not necessarily this film but that great art can come from that hmm. I think is an interesting thing to think about I think that we talk about this a lot specifically this season on our other show Right of like, mm -hmm. yeah. We uh, particularly in the Patreon episodes, not to plug our Patreon, but also subscribe. Um, <laughs> it we've been watching low budget shark movies, and by and large, we've come out being like pretty interesting. Like like not necessarily a lot of them have been boring, a little bit, but mm -hmm. a lot of them have a spirit of like art for the sake of art like that is missing from a lot of the big budget shit right and i think that's the point that godard is mm -hmm. making here is like 
just because you don't have a budget doesn't mean there you don't have an artistic spirit behind it. And yeah, the artistic spirit behind yeah. the films we've been talking about is like, what if Shark does goofy thing? But <laughs> like, particularly with our most recent Patreon episode, like that is a well considered film. It is like. Mm-hmm. It is as well considered as just about anything else I've seen this year. You know what I mean? Like this is a, it is it is a film someone thought about, and yet yeah, has its shoestring mm-hmm. budget, and yet yeah, it's about a shark with a candy cane horn. But it is like it is it is a a movie that is low budget and interesting, right? Like I came out of that mm-hmm. movie like that was great, and that's exactly what he's talking about, right? Like. There, there is this idea that low budget films are not good and like it's weird mm-hmm. nowadays in that we're almost swinging back on that where it's like the lower the budget of a movie is like the more I kind of want to see it and not just like like I mean like uh, Godzilla minus one 15 million dollars on that budget sure. uh, looks better than 90% of the Marvel movies since like 2016 like um that boy is large and in charge like that is that movie is real good and yeah american budget of 15 million dollars and the director came out and said in an interview that like no we wish we had 15 million dollars so uh yeah um it was probably like fifteen million, including marketing. Some mm-hmm. some report it as like mm-hmm. pre marketing spend, as in like just what is spent on the film. Mm-hmm. But then a lot like factor that in as well. So yeah, it was probably made for considerably less than fifteen yeah. million in terms of like actual production budget. Yeah, and looks amazing, like legit incredible looking film, just top to bottom. Like it's yeah. there is not a moment of dodgy CGI in that fucking movie. And also, like, uh, while we're talking about it, a low-budget movie, granted it's from Japan, so it doesn't quite fit the um, idea that Godard is putting forward there of, like, oh, American low-budget movies are looked down upon, but Japanese low-budget film made for probably less than $15 million that has captured audiences' attention. It's been number three Mm. or number two both weekends it's been out they've it's, they've extended the run of the film because of that yeah rad that's awesome and like not just mm-hmm. as a lifelong godzilla fan but like as a lifelong godzilla fan as well like seeing people go see a godzilla movie right like it is that is such a uh it is for so long been such a like a niche thing to go and and be a fan of but to go see a film that is as well considered as that and see mm. other people see the artistry and the craftsmanship that, like, you know, that's a franchise with 30-whatever movies. Like, it's going to be up and down. But to see what I have always seen in those films from, like, a general audience perspective, it is capturing hearts and minds. And it is genuinely, like, incredible to see, one, as a Godzilla fan, and two, as someone who is out on Marvel shit now. Like, to see <laughs> this sort of blockbustery film that has a lot to say that has a lot on its mind be a hit and have people like seriously consider that film right people are talking about it the same way they're talking about oppenheimer the same way they're talking about killers of the flower moon this year and they absolutely should be because it is that one that good and two like that well considered and 
but it, mm. the budget is, I mean, it, less than probably 20% of Killers of the Fire Moon and 10% of uh, Oppenheimer, you know? Mm. And it's still a film about trauma in the face of large, like, country-wide, like, country-changing things. It just happens to have a large radioactive lizard as part of that, you know? <laughs> and with this, it is a film that I think as the gangster film was, you know, you can sort of trace like the Western and the gangster film kind of have similar trajectories of like being the, 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 the genre du jour of the day uh, and age that guns don't argue is released. Um, you can see it. And so what happens is right. Like every, we saw this with comic book movies when they took over as well. Every little fucking comic book movie on the planet like, they left no comic unturned to try to get mm. <laughs> a piece of that money. So, despite the fact that there were a ton of Dillinger movies, there's been a shit ton of Dillinger movies. There's a lot of them. Um, so many. Yeah, there's so many Dillinger movies. It's still, like, you know, they still put their hat in the ring here. Like, whatever it was called, like, Drama Entertainment Screen Group or whatever. <laughs> like, Screen Drama <laughs> Entertainment Group or something. They put their hat in the ring. Because uh, they wanted to make a quick buck off of this thing, but they also, like, made it for pennies and, like, made a movie. They made a movie. The movie makes sense, right? Like, it's it's mm-hmm. not necessarily like, – it's it's hard to follow until, like, the second act. Like, once the second act with yeah. the Ma Barker stuff settles in, it's pretty, like, pretty easy to follow the story from the Ma Barker stuff through the end of the film. And that's, like, the beating heart mm-hmm. of the movie. And they did it. You know, like, it's, that's not nothing. Like, yeah, the tone's weird. Yeah, it's mm. largely boring, especially in the first act, because the first act doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the film. But they made the, they made a movie. They made a movie, and it impacted one of the, you know, the greatest artists that ever lived. You know, he sees something yeah. of value in that. And the, the other thing, too, I don't really agree with Marty a lot these days, right? I think Birdman sucks. Mm. Um, I do not like that movie. I think Midsummer sucks. I think Ari Aster is kind of overrated. I like Hereditary a lot. I have not seen Bo is Afraid. That man is all over that dude as an artist, right? Like, I don't <laughs> like his movie. Like, I'm 50-50 on him, right? I like Hereditary. I don't like Midsummer. Jury's out on Bo is Afraid for me because I haven't seen it. But I also did not feel compelled to. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I do, like he's, you know, my favorite director of all time. And I think that sometimes I'm just like, what are you on about? Yeah. And like the, what I don't like uh, with, I, I guess any fandom is that kind of blind, everything they've ever done and everything they've ever said is said is incredible and amazing. And I agree with it all because mm-hmm. I just don't see how, right. <laughs> like I know that I am not going to like every, marty film there's not Mm -hmm. that many that i don't like but there will be some i know that like not every film on this list of companion films i am going to like this being one of them didn't care for it will probably never watch it again but that's okay like we've still had a conversation about it and we can still even though we don't like it see it in a very different way to, to to how marty does it's like yeah okay we can see how him someone anyone watching this film could go i see what that has done 
and this is what I have taken away from it. Like I can understand someone seeing this film and going, that's how you make a movie for no money at all. <laughs> it can be done. Great. I'm going to go out and be one of the greatest directors of all time. The greatest director of all time. Yeah. Like, but you don't have to. I, I just, I hate that. You have it with like, I don't know, anything that people are fans of, whether it's like a film franchise, a band, a author like it could be mm-hmm. anything do you know mm-hmm. what i mean where it's just like people are like everything they've ever done is incredible and they've never done anything wrong it's like no that's not true yeah. my favorite band of all time i still acknowledge that there are songs they have that suck like that's fine yeah like- <laughs> okay yeah, yeah yeah okay which uh what beatles song do you fucking hate no <laughs> no i'm serious i'm dead serious because i have some beatles songs i don't like um what's the one where it's just yoko talking <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. revolution revolution number, number one i think yeah or the number number nine i just think of the yeah. i just think of the simpsons parody of it where it's like number eight and then like barney burping down yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah the actual version of that yeah i find very annoying i don't like that song really at all <laughs> my brother did until it became my niece's favorite song sure yeah <laughs> then then he had to like it yeah i don't like that song whatsoever <laughs> piggies sucks too piggies is not a good song like controversial i don't think yellow submarine is that great oh you know what beatles song <laughs> i fucking hate is long and winding road i think that song is boring as shit Inter- oh gosh this is getting controversial now well while we're at it i think hey jude is overrated whoa Ooh, moving on whoa okay that's wild <laughs> um but yeah anyway no, it's a the, good it's a good song it's just overplayed anyway the continue. the it is so long. <laughs> it's so long it is so long um but the point being that like <laughs> I, the beatles are i think one of our favorite bands of all time if we did a music podcast it would be a beatles podcast um Hell yeah and uh <laughs> so subscribe to that patreon um <laughs> uh but yeah, I don't love every Beatles song. I don't think they're all good. There's too many of nope. them for them to all be good. Yeah. There's just, yeah. just it's too much, right? Like there's like you said, I don't like every Mario movie. I think New York, New York is bad. The movie is just fueled by cocaine and it's too long and it's too much improv. It's not good. There's good scenes in that movie. <laughs> right? Mm, but mm. Eh. like I don't like Obla Obla I like the White Album, right? Like Yeah yeah there's bad spielberg films we've watched <laughs> some of yeah. them and we freaking love spielberg yeah. like i just i don't think there is any artist in any medium that has got like a completely flawless record right. if there are any then it is rare right but that like yeah like what i i didn't come into this podcast thinking like i am going to like every single film that we've watched but still to find things within it that we can talk about and and unpack and dive into is kind of what we were hoping for really i mean i was worried this was going to be like a five minute chat of us just being like yeah it's not very good is it yeah <laughs> you should know better but than that alas there's always like yeah yeah i should know it's us of course there's always stuff to say yeah but yeah but yeah, I mean, I think I'm done saying it. You know what I mean? Like, I I don't have a lot yeah. else to say. It's whatever. It's it's like you should probably shouldn't watch it. Like, I don't think it is as important of a watch 
to the Scorsese like narrative as Shadows is like yeah and I I legit I think if I didn't like Shadows I would still probably recommend people who are big Scorsese fans watch that film because of how much you can see how it impacted his career this not so much like this is this feels like a pick of like a Marty of a certain age liked this movie right this would be like if I picked um a film called Rockadoodle. I don't know if you've ever heard of Rockadoodle. It is a wait. Is that a, a Don Bluth? It is a Don Bluth film. Yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have heard of it. Okay. I love that movie. It probably sucks. Like I haven't seen it since I was a kid. But that movie is basically what if Elvis was a rooster? And um, great. No yep, notes. Yep. It is by and large the Elvis story, but he's a rooster, and. The thing about it, I love music biopics now because I liked mm. Rockadoodle a lot. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's you can trace a direct line from it. Matter of fact, I think I said that on Fundamentals. Um, I think I hyped yeah. up Rockadoodle on Fundamentals because I was on there to talk about music biopics. And, like, I don't like every music biopic. Bohemian Rhapsody is ass. Most of them are bad. But I still have a soft spot for them because I liked Rockadoodle so much as a kid. Rockadoodle probably sucks too. My my Rockadoodle is probably uh, Free Willy because I, I freaking loved that film when I was younger, and it's because of that film that I then love shark films yeah. and Jaws and yeah. where we end up now. So yeah. you know, there's films I'm not gonna go back and watch that film. It probably sucks. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I would like if I ever have kids. Yeah, if I ever have yeah, kids, I would ma- like I would show them Rockadoodle, but I don't suspect it holding up. No, no. And a lot of, like, I've gone back and watched childhood. Martin is the biggest one for this. Like, he will, as in my husband, not Martin Scorsese. Should clarify <laughs> people are new to us. Um, he, he'll he be like, oh, I love that film. And I'm like, when is the last time you watched it? And he's like, oh, I've not watched it since I was a kid. And I was just like, I think you might think differently about it if you watched it now. Yeah. Like, I can't remember examples, but, like, he showed me a trailer for one film where he was like, I used to watch this film all the time when I was a kid. I loved it. I, have, I probably haven't seen it for about 30 years, and I was just watching it like, Ugh. Looks like <laughs> shit, dude. <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, man. That's a, <laughs> I mean, I that's feel a, that... that's a choice. <laughs> this is, you know, maybe a little bit controversial, but I feel that way about the movie Labyrinth. Like, I did not grow up with that movie. Sure. I don't think it's very good. I think there's good music in it. I think the puppets are all super mm-hmm. awesome, but like as a movie, it's kind of sucks. Like it's not, it's not good. But I didn't grow up with it, and there's like a lot of people that did, and so they love it. Right. Hook. Yeah, oh yeah, hook. yeah. <laughs> ultimate example, right? Like, uh, well, no, but uh, I did grow up with Hook a little bit, and uh, still not good. <laughs> Yeah, well, we have a we have a whole other episode if you want to. Hear yeah, our yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a different hook. podcast. But... Uh, yeah yeah the point being of like like art hits you at a certain age right and then it sticks with you and it becomes part of you and that is important but and it's weird it's this weird thing where you don't outgrow it i don't feel like i've outgrown rockadoodle weirdly because it is still part of me it is still like i do somewhere in the even subconsciously if there's a new music biopic i want to see it because of rockadoodle you know what i mean um that hasn't left me. That doesn't mean like, yeah, it's probably not a movie I want to revisit because in that sense, I have outgrown it. But in another mm. sense, it really shaped me. 
you know, and that's yeah. not nothing. And you know, I had the same thing with the first like a couple seasons of the show Pokemon, right? I was su- such mm. a Pokemon kid because I was a dinosaur kid, same. right? And Pokemon are essentially dinosaurs you can turn into slaves. Um, and uh, <laughs> don't think about it too much. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was very like enraptured by that idea because it was like, oh, you could, you could have a little dinosaur as a pet more or less. Right. Like, and that's great as an idea. I didn't keep up with that shit. I, I like, I know the show ended and I watched, I watched the, the, the last like scenes of it and it did like make me weirdly nostalgic, but like, I have no mm. desire to play any new Pokemon game. The last Pokemon game I played was Pokemon Silver. Uh, wow. And, like, yeah, I don't care anymore. But that was a huge <laughs> part of my life. Like, that shaped my love of trivia because I had all the, like, Pokemon memorized or whatever. You know, that's mm-hmm. that was huge for me. Like, it shaped my love of modern-day board gaming because I got into the trading card game and played it some, semi-competitively. You know? Um mm-hmm yeah that's not nothing right and like yeah i've outgrown it as a franchise as far as like something i keep up with but like i have very fond memories looking back on my time i spent with Mm. it you know yeah also i mean rockadoodle clearly influenced you because you're wearing a hoodie with a rooster on it so (laughs) from a record store (laughs) from a record store the rockadoodle himself (laughs) yeah there he is sorry i had to bring that in the cock of the rock (laughs) it made me laugh real good real good yeah i unlike shadows which i have been telling every single person to watch um i don't know if i could say the same for this but where where did you watch it just in case people did want to watch it? it's on amazon prime however (laughs) um i don't know what the hell is going on with it on amazon prime because um oh yeah weird there's a 116 minute cut on amazon prime And I think the 116-minute cut is actually Gangbusters, the first film they made out of an old Gangbusters episode. But I started the 116-minute one just to see, and it starts exactly the same. So there's, yeah, there's a weird, there's the, when I started it, there's an added, like, preamble of text of, like, this film is dedicated to the brave men and women of the FBI or whatever. And then it goes into, like, the 1934 card that starts guns don't argue and then it goes into that shot of the carriage coming around the the corner so i didn't watch mm-hmm. it past that um so if you are someone keeping up with us and you do want to watch this and you're in america amazon prime the 90 minute version of guns don't argue not the 116 minute version or watch the 160 minute version and tell us if any of this made sense to you <laughs> Yeah, I think on I also watched it on, on Amazon. It was the only place I could watch it mm. in the UK, so I think it's yeah. probably the only place it's available for rent. Yep, and the um, print sucks. Yeah, God, awful, so bad. Um, but yeah, my, I watched the ninety-minute version as well, and and thank God because I slept enough the first time I watched it. I didn't need to sleep anymore. Um, should clarify, did watch, watch it a second time and didn't fall asleep. So I have actually watched the, <laughs> watched yeah. the film. I didn't just take a lovely nap. Um, yeah, I think I think that's about everything for, for the film. So just to wrap things up, uh, if you want to find us on any of the social medias, uh, the podcast that is, we are on Twitter and TikTok at Let's Party Marty. 
uh, on Instagram as Let's Party Marty Pod. We are individually on Twitter. I'm at Sarah Buttery and MJ is at MJ Smith 891. Uh, on our podcast socials, there'll be um, our link tree, which has got a link uh, if you want to buy merch um, with our fabulous logo and a text only version as well, which is very cool. Probably not time to get it in time for Christmas, but hey, maybe treat yourself to something afterwards. And if you want to contact us in any other way, obviously this is our, only our third episode. So if you've got some nice things to say or some nice feedback or anything, any thoughts, um, then email those to us at martypartypod at gmail.com. Uh, our next film will be Boxcar Bertha from the main man himself. Um, so yeah, until next time, it's Marty time, bitches. <laughs>